All right. Kiddos can be dismissed. Yay. All right. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 is where we're at. Uh, We are continuing this series through the book of 1 John uh, called Lightwalkers. And we are trying to answer the question, what does it look like to walk in the light? Uh, Part of answering that question uh, involves asking the opposite question, and that is, what does it look like to walk in darkness? Um, In Norse mythology, uh, Odin is sort of the the king of the gods. He's the the head honcho of the gods. Uh, Sometimes his name is pronounced Woden. Uh, So fun fact, we get the day Wednesday from the term Woden's Day. There will also be a couple of other figures uh, in this story like Thor, from which we get Thor's Day, uh, and also Frigga, which where we get uh, Friday. So there's your homeschool fun fact of the day. Um, so Woden, or Odin, is the ruler of Valhalla. And Valhalla is essentially sort of like a celestial palace in a place called Asgard. And so Asgard and Valhalla are places where slain warriors go after they die in combat. Um, it's obviously more nuanced than that, but that's sort of the basic idea. It's not the same as heaven, because heaven is eternal. Um, The idea of Valhalla is that it's sort of an in-between, and these slain warriors are going to Valhalla to be with Odin as they prepare for Ragnarok. Uh, Ragnarok is the end of, and then also the rebirth of, the world. Um, Well, Odin Odin has sons via various goddesses. Um, Again, some of their names you'll recognize. The oldest of their sons is Thor. Uh, He is the uh, hammer-wielding god of thunder, played, of course, by Chris Hemsworth. Uh, Then there's Loki, the god of mischief. He's uh, sort of a bad guy. Um, And if you're Marvel Avengers fans, you're already kind of picturing these things in your mind. Um, I actually, uh, when I was in college, I worked with a Scandinavian guy whose name was Lars Larsen, and Lars is another one of the um, Scandinavian gods. And uh, I always thought that his name was cool because it was Lars Larsen, and so I told him, dude, you have the coolest name, and he was like, you should hear my brother's names. And I'm like, well, what are your brother's names? And he's like, Odin and Thor. And I'm like, are you serious? Your parents have very high view of their children, naming all three of them after these gods. Um, well, one of the gods that didn't make it into the Marvel series was Hoder. He was the Amish god. Uh, no, I'm sorry, that was Yoder. Um, Hoder had a twin brother, Balder. And Balder was uh, highly favored, more so than, uh, than Hoder was. Now, it was foretold about Balder that he would be a mighty warrior. Um, And Hoder, on the other hand, was kind of the the opposite. He was blind and was the god of darkness. 
the blind god of darkness. Well, Odin and his lady Frigga were told by a prophet that Baldur would be murdered. And so uh, as they uh, hear this prophecy, they decide they're going to do whatever it possibly takes to prevent this. So Frigga goes down to earth to make every creature and every plant swear that they will not do any harm to Baldur. And she gets every creature and every plant to swear to this, except she accidentally forgets one, and that is the mistletoe bush. I don't know why, but mistletoe forgets to promise that it won't do any harm to Baldur. So enter Loki, the god of mischief. Loki is jealous of Baldur, and so he wants him dead. But rather than killing Baldur himself... Uh, he decided that he would use the blind Hoder to do his dirty work. So Loki fashions an arrow made of mistletoe and he brings it to Hoder. And then he begins to whisper um, deception into Hoder's ear and he directs him to shoot this arrow. And so Hoder fires his arrow not knowing where it's aimed, where it's going, And it goes straight into the body of his twin brother, Baldur, killing him instantly. Um, Germanic tribes held that the thought that this event is symbolized by winter. Winter being the time when nights grow longer and colder, when the sun fades, when the darkness rules over the light. And so, not only is Hoder the blind god of darkness, he is also the god of winter. And so maybe he's to blame for the weather this week. Uh, For our purposes, uh, however, this story helps to frame a very important idea. And that is that walking in spiritual darkness comes with a number of terrible outcomes. And one of the worst is the harm that we end up doing to our brothers and sisters. The first two chapters of 1 John have been contrasting walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. And today, John is going to explain that when we walk in the darkness, not only do we stumble, we also cause others to stumble. And it's in the darkness that the mischievous enemy that we have comes in and begins to whisper to us, convincing us to say things and do things that we don't even realize the damage of until much later on. And in the darkness, we end up firing arrows unwittingly straight into our brothers' and sisters' hearts. And though we might claim that we are walking in the light because of the things that we believe and that most of our life seems to be centered around those beliefs, it's our actions that prove that so many times what we're actually filled with is darkness and hate. So, on that happy note... Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 7 through 14. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So, John begins this passage by talking about this commandment that in one sense is old, but in another sense is new. In one sense it's not new, and in another sense it's brand new. So we have to first ask the question, well, what command is he actually talking about? Well, the answer comes from John chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus is speaking, and John records him saying in uh, John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, again, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, The new commandment that I give you is that you are to love one another. However, we know that that commandment isn't exactly brand new because that same commandment appears in the Old Testament law. In Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verse 18, um, Moses writing, Leviticus 19, verse 18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we have God the Father and God the Son speaking the same commandment in the Old Testament and in the New. So God first hands this uh, down in Leviticus, and then Jesus reiterates it by saying, this new commandment I give you. So uh, balancing how it's old and how it's new comes down to the way that it is understood and applied. It's not that the command itself is brand new or that the words are somehow different. But in Christ, it becomes a new commandment because of the way that it comes to life in him. Because he is the first one to demonstrate it perfectly. He's the first one to live it out the way that it was intended to live out. And so if we are walking with Christ... If, as we use John's terminology, if we are abiding in Christ, if we are walking in the light, then we know that this commandment has come to life in us as well. We read this just now in verse 8 where he says, um, It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it is new in the sense that this commandment now comes to life in us. Because it has come to life in Jesus. He has demonstrated it and it is, he's placed it within us. And so now in that sense it is new. A uh, commentator named Brian Bell says that it is a new command in several ways. First, it is new in its authority. 
So the words are the same, but its authority is new because Jesus has taken that old commandment and he has now put his sanction on it. So the authority of it in Christ is now new. It is also new in its standard. So Jesus takes that commandment which was handed down and he presents his own love for us uh, in, as a model for us to live out. It's new also in its emphasis. Now our primary responsibility and the primary thing for which we are known is the love for our neighbor. Because again, Jesus said there in John chapter 13, by this they will know that you are one of my disciples if you love one another. So it's new in its emphasis. It is also new in its extent. So whereas in the Old Testament we were told you must love your neighbor, Jesus then ups the ante and says, not only are you to love your neighbor, but you are also to love your enemy. You're to love your brother as yourself, but you're also to love those who hate you. So Jesus uh, takes the extent of that command and he makes it brand new. And then finally, he makes it brand new in its experience. So the truth of its newness is seen in us and the way that we experience it lived out. So it's an old commandment in the sense that it was there in the law. And at that time, it was something that mankind could never uphold in and of themselves. It it was an impossible standard when it was first uh, given. In another sense, it is a new commandment because it is the center of the new covenant. And this time, it was accomplished for us on our behalf so that we can now walk in obedience to it. So we have internalized it in Christ. He has accomplished it for us and now given us the ability to live this out. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. And essentially, this point is really the point of the entire sermon. If if the entire sermon was boiled down to one statement, it would be this statement here, point number one. And that is that real love for God will always result in love for neighbor. Real love for God will always result in love for our neighbor. You might say that the absence of one necessarily means the absence of the other. If there is no love for neighbor, then that means we have no real love for God. And if we have no love for God, it is impossible for us to love our neighbor. These two are are both sides of the same coin. Uh, If we don't have love for God, we will not have love for neighbor. If we don't have love for neighbor, we will not have love for God. Part of this is because what we are doing when we love someone else is we are loving the image of God in them. One of the reasons why it's so important that we follow this command is because when we treat someone else with hate, we're not just hating that person. We are tearing down the image of God in that person. Vice versa, when we love someone, we're not just loving that person. We are loving the image of God in that person. And so these two things work together to give us one command. We cannot have love for God without also loving our neighbor. Uh, He says it very clearly that whoever says he's in the light but 
hates his brother is in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John doesn't give any wiggle room here. There's no uh, room left or right of this. If we say, I'm a Christian, if we say, I love the Lord, if we say, I know Jesus, and yet our conduct toward neighbor doesn't uphold that, he says, well, that's not true. Earlier in chapter 2, he said this in verse 4. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There's a a verse in John chapter 10 where Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees and, and speaking to the surrounding people, he says, why do you call me Lord and yet not do what I say? So John makes it very clear there that if we say we know him, but we don't keep his commandments, that makes liars out of us. And uh, we've just spent a few moments explaining what this commandment that he's referring to is, that we love one another. We cannot love God without loving our brother, and vice versa. We cannot love our brother without loving God first. Now, I want you to notice one of the things that's not here. Sometimes when we're reading the Bible, it's important not only to see what it says, but also what it doesn't say. Notice here in this commandment that we're given to love our brother, it doesn't say love our brother because he deserves it. It doesn't say love your brother because they have earned it. Our love for brother is not based on merit. Just like God's love for us is not based on merit. God does not love us because we deserve it. God loves us because God is love. And so if we are to reflect the light of God in our lives, we love not because another person earns it, not because another person deserves it, but because we are walking in love, period. Our brother does not have to earn by merit our favor, just as we do not earn the favor of God by merit. We cannot base love for brother on whether or not they've been kind to us, whether or not they have been good to us. We love simply because we walk in the light. Full stop. We tend to put a lot of conditions on love. We, we tend to put a lot of requirements on love. And the people that we love are people that we believe have kept those requirements, have kept whatever things on that checklist. They've treated us with respect, they haven't been selfish, they've served us in X, Y, or Z ways, so on and so forth. And we keep a running list in our mind of offenses. We keep a running list of our mind of good things that people have done. And so we treat people with love based on whether or not they fit in our list. But John tells us that is not how we're called to live. We are called to live loving people for the reason that God is love. And God loves people. So then should we. Remember, uh, we talked before that John, at this point in his life, was called the apostle of love. 
Um, one commentary pointed out that according to to tradition, uh, at this stage in his ministry, John was characterized by his emphasis uh, on this idea. And his exhortation throughout his ministry was one of the church should be people that love one another. Because John saw this as the fulfillment of God, the fulfillment of the law. Again, an idea that he got from his best friend, Jesus. And so there's one particular story that uh, in the latter part of his life, John was so old that he could no longer get out of bed. Um, And so his disciples would carry him on a mat into the church, and, and they would bring him to the front of the church where he would look out and he would just say three words, love one another. That was his entire sermon. I know that sometimes you probably wish that was my entire sermon instead of me standing up here for an hour uh, explaining things. John would get up at times and just say, love one another. Paul echoed this same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter that you hear at all the weddings. Where he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, if I understand all the mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith Hope and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. My friends, if we do not have love, we do not have anything. To walk in the light is to walk in love. And real love for God will always result in real love for neighbor. Point number two. We love... Because we abide in Christ. Thank God this is not something I have to come up with on my own. (laughs) Thank goodness I don't have to rely on my own strength to love people that annoy the ever-loving crap out of me. Right? It is because I abide in Christ that I can even experience this love to begin with. A love that, again, I do not deserve. Because ask my wife how difficult it is to live with me sometimes, and she will say, thank God he gives me the strength to love. Our love doesn't come from us, it comes from the one that we are abiding in. And that should have a tremendous effect on how we live our lives. 
He says that we are in the light if we love. We are abiding in the light. Our primary allegiance in this life is to Jesus. Our primary identity has to be in Jesus. Not in our country, not in our ethnicity, in our jobs, in our sport, in our station in life. And not that any of those are bad things. Those are all blessings. Those are good things. As I'm sure you are, I am proud to live in this nation. I'm proud to be an American. I'm also very proud to be Puerto Rican. Uh, I'm proud that that is my lineage. I love my family. I love my job. I love the things that I get to do. I'm passionate about a lot of the wonderful things that are blessings. Blessings straight from God. But none of those things should ever come before my allegiance to Jesus. And I should never see myself as anything first but Christ follower. I am first a Christ follower who also happens to be all of these other things. We live in a culture that loves to get behind causes. And not that causes are a bad thing. Some causes are very, very good. There, there are some very good fights to fight. But there are, are ways in which we have to fight those the right way. As we're defending justice, we have to defend it the right way. But what is the driving force behind us doing good things? The driving force, the motivating force behind everything should be our identity in Christ. When we approach especially those who disagree with us. So let's get super practical and real. This is especially difficult when we are dealing with people who are on the opposite side of us on something that we care about. All of us are, are passionate about different things. So when we're trying to apply this, it helps to think of it in, in, in the sense of, what if I'm dealing with someone who's on the other side of a debate that I'm really strongly opinioned on? Um, when I was at Liberty, uh, I went to school at a place called Liberty University, the world's most exciting Christian university, according to the, the founder. Um, when I was there, there was a running joke that you were never more than 10 feet away from a debate on Calvinism versus Arminianism. Wherever you were on campus, you were never more than 10 feet away from this debate. Um, while I was there, it was a, a, a smaller student body. Many of the students were going into ministry. Um, a lot of future pastors, and, and, and to say that there were strong opinions from the future pastors of America would be a bit of an understatement, okay? Um, and uh, if you're not familiar with the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, I will sum it up with a gross oversimplification. Uh, the, the debate is between Calvinism teaching that salvation is a result of the sovereignty of God not the free will choice of man. Arminianism says that our salvation is by free will choice. And it is something that you can lose. So the Calvinist says salvation is guaranteed before you were born. The Arminian says you are saved by free will and you can choose for or against at any time. And that, again, is a, a, an oversimplification. 
But this debate was the favorite at Liberty. It was the one that everyone zeroed in on. It was the one that everyone um, gave their strongest opinion on. Every 19-year-old future theologian was passionate about this. And as we know, 19-year-olds know the answer to everything in the world, right? They have the wisdom to solve all of the world's problems. They know exactly what needs to be done in the world to fix it. And so, in this big group of uh, eternally wise 19-year-olds, obviously a debate that had been raging for hundreds and hundreds of years would be solved. So, again, this joke was you're never 10 feet away from people debating this. And and I'll be honest, sometimes it felt like that was true. (laughs) There were literally times where I'd be walking down the hallway and I'd hear a conversation, and then I'd walk further and I'd hear a conversation, and I'm like, it really is true. It's all over the place. Um, But here's why I bring it up. The vast majority of the time, what you would have are two Christian brothers, At the same school, believing in the same God, there for the same reason to be trained to go into ministry for the same kingdom, right? But that is not what you would find in the conversation, in the tone of the conversation. You wouldn't find two Christian brothers there to encourage one another, to build one another up. What you had were two people who were incredibly passionate about their side of the argument, convinced that they were right and the other person is dead wrong. And so they would do everything they could. They were practically screaming at each other to tear each other's arguments apart. And it was one of those arguments where you know that one person isn't really listening when they're not talking. They're just waiting for their opportunity to speak. Right? You would walk by and you, you didn't even have to see or, or hear the words that were being spoken. You could see the posture. You could look across the room and know what was going on because you'd have the one guy who was holding his Bible like this and he's using these hand motions and then the other guy is like at the very front of his chair. You're not even sitting all the way back. He's at the front of his chair and his chest is out like this because he's waiting for the other guy to stop talking so that he can jump in and tell the other guy why he is all wrong. In the vast majority of the time, one did not convince the other. The vast majority of the time, the two would walk away, still on completely opposite sides, frustrated that this other person couldn't see the truth. Sometimes, even convinced that this other person was not even saved. And even more than that, there is no way the two of them could be friends. Couldn't happen. I watched as people who lived in the same dorm room would avoid each other because they are on opposite sides of the debate. People who, again, are supposed to be brothers in Christ, encouraging one another on the same team, refusing to even speak to one another because they've had this debate. Now, if you were to ask them if they loved each other, it would be like asking your two children who've just been in a fight if they're sorry. Of course, they're going to say, yeah, I'm sorry. They don't mean it. You just forced them to say, I'm sorry. If you were to ask these two gentlemen, do you love one another in Christ? They would say, well, of course, I love them in Jesus. 
But that doesn't mean I have to like them. <laughs> and there would be no fellowship whatsoever. Now for us, it might not be a debate about Reformed theology. But I want to encourage you to honestly assess your own heart for a moment. Is there an issue in your life about which you would feel this way, this passionate? Maybe for you it might be a political debate. Maybe it's Trump versus never Trump. Perhaps it's Republican versus Democrat or Libertarian or Anarchy, (laughs) wherever you stand. Insert any list of political positions, stances, movements, matters, whatever. Maybe it's whether it's better to homeschool or to send your kids to public school. Maybe it's over Christian liberties, like whether Christians should be allowed to drink alcohol or watch certain TV shows or movies. Maybe it's your view on guns. You could insert almost anything. My point is we have to be honest as we examine ourselves in these things. And we have to ask, have I been guilty of vilifying a brother or sister in Christ who disagrees with me about something that I am passionate about? Have I ever made an enemy out of someone who's supposed to be a brother or sister simply because they're on the other side of a debate? Have I, in the past, ever left a church because of a disagreement on a tertiary matter? Do the things that I post on social media paint those who disagree with me as complete idiots who surely don't worship Jesus? Okay, this is one that we really have to be honest about. Do we put up a passive-aggressive post ever on Facebook about someone who's on the opposite side of a debate or a group of people who are on the opposite side of a debate and we just say they're all idiots, they're all morons? Ask yourself, is there anything that I am more passionate about than the gospel? Is there anything that I'm more passionate about than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there a cause, a fight, a job, a stance, a characteristic, anything that I view my identity in more than I do in Christ? That is something that requires self-examination. Do I view myself as blank first and also a Christian? And I'm not talking about what you would admit to if someone were to ask you this directly. <laughs> if, if I were to walk up to you and say, do you identify as a Christian first? Well, of course you're going to say to the pastor, uh, yeah, of course I do. I'm talking about in your own heart, as you are honest before the Lord, and remember, you can't lie to Jesus. He knows. <laughs> if he were to ask you, Is there anything that you could say, for example, yes, I am guilty of seeing myself as an American first and then a Christian. I'm guilty of seeing myself as a Republican or Democrat first 
before a Christian. Ask yourself this. If you were to sit down face to face across the table with a brother or sister who disagrees with you fundamentally on something about which you are very passionate, can you disagree with them in a way that is loving? Can you give them a hug afterward? Can you be in the same small group as them? Can you view someone who is a brother or sister as being completely wrong, but still completely loved? So again, to illustrate, just filling in the blanks here, use Republican and Democrat, for example. Can you share a church, a friendship, a meal with someone who is a Democrat? Or if you are a Democrat... Can you do that with a Republican? Can you join in prayer with someone who is voting for the person that you would never vote for? Who's on the opposite side of the aisle? Can you then say amen at the end of that prayer, give them a hug and say, I am glad that we are brothers and sisters in Christ? If you cannot... John has very strong words. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. We have to recognize that there are matters of primary importance, secondary importance, and tertiary importance. Primary matters are things like the identity of God, The gospel of Jesus, the foundation of his word, these are of primary importance. Then there are matters of secondary importance. Uh, In a primary setting, we need to be on the same page. We've got to be on the same page if if we're going to walk this together. In a matter of secondary importance, there's things like the nature of church leadership or church government, uh, some other matters of doctrine and theology. And these are things that we don't have to agree on, but it'll make things easier if we do agree on. If we don't agree on them, we can still very easily view each other as brothers or sisters in Christ. We might not be in the same church body, but there it is. Um, And that's okay. A Calvinist and an Arminian are on the same team. They worship Jesus, they can love each other, but go to different churches, and that's fine. And then there are tertiary matters, matters of lesser importance. They can still be things that you're very passionate about. It's not that they don't matter at all. They're just not primary or secondary. They they can still be very important to you, and you can have very strong views on these things, but they are not worth breaking fellowship over. They're not worth refusing friendship, and they are certainly not worth demonizing or vilifying others for sharing a different view. So, we have to recognize that we love because we abide in Christ, especially with those who disagree with us. Because if we're not careful, then point number three, hate blinds us. Hate blinds us. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with the term blinded by the light. 
there's a very cheesy song by a white guy singing Blinded by the Light. <laughs> but John gives us an opposite thought to consider, and that is the thought of being blinded by the darkness. Blinded by the darkness. John tells us that when we hate our brother, for whatever reason, not only does it cause us to be in darkness, the darkness actually does something to us. It blinds us. Look at verse 11. He says, Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The darkness has blinded his eyes. So it starts out with you in the darkness and then the darkness is in you. That even if the lights were to be turned on, you're still blind. Even if you suddenly walked out into the sunlight, you've lost your ability to see. All of us have probably used the term blind as a bat. Um, But have you ever heard the term blind as a cave fish? Probably not because no one says it. But maybe they should because it's more accurate. As it turns out, there are a number of species of fish that live in caves where no sunlight ever reaches the water. And so the darkness in which they inhabit is entirely dark. But what's interesting about these fish is the kind of adaptations that they've had to their environment there in a cave. Because these fish weren't original to the cave, they somehow made their way into it and then never made their way out. An unfortunate uh, turn of events for them. And so some of these fish are no different in most ways than fish that you would find in an aquarium or in a river. But when they end up in these caves with no way out, eventually they lose their sight and then eventually they actually lose their eyes. These fish have eye sockets but no eyeballs. They stop developing eyes. We know that anything that, uh, that needs to see needs light. But there in the cave, they have no light. They have nothing but darkness. So they can no longer see. They, they end up using other senses to navigate. The point of this is, the longer they are in the darkness, the more the darkness affects them. And because they've been in the darkness so long, the darkness is now a part of who they are. They have to sense their way around. They are not blinded by light. They're blinded by darkness. John tells us that this is what happens when we allow ourselves to operate with hatred instead of love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Which again isn't just a full out, I hate you. To hate someone is to fail to love them the way that Christ does. And John tells us that when we hate The darkness blinds us. And just like these fish, this is not something that happens overnight. This is a long process. But if we don't identify it, if we don't change it, if if we don't change our direction because we know that that's where we're walking, then eventually we'll walk further and further away from the light and deeper and deeper into the shadows. And eventually... We go blind. This is when the enemy comes in. Going back to the story that we started with. This is when the enemy comes in. Begins to whisper in our ear. Convinces us to do his dirty work for him. 
And there, in the blind darkness, we start shooting arrows with no idea where they're going or what effect they're going to have when they land. And unwittingly, we become people who destroy the body of Christ from within because we fail to love. There's a phrase here in verse 10 uh, where John uses the term cause for stumbling. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now, this isn't just a cause for stumbling myself. Uh, Anytime you're walking in darkness, it's easy to trip over things. Um, I'm sure you've had situations where you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or to, to do something in your house, and instead of turning the light on, you walk in the darkness. Now, depending on the state of your house, this can be a very risky thing to do. In my house, especially with two young kids, there's crap everywhere all over the floor. And a lot of it is like little toys like Legos. So don't ever walk barefoot in my house. You will regret it. But you know how you walk when you're in the darkness, right? When there's no lights and and you know that there might be stuff, you're walking like this trying to feel your way around, right? Because you don't want to stumble. He's talking about stumbling ourselves, but he also puts this in relationship to our brothers, that there is cause for stumbling in us for them, that they stumble because of us. So we're not just tripping ourselves up when we do this, we're we're tripping them up. So again, the the process of self-examination here has to include Is there anything about my life that would cause somebody else to stumble? Are there ways in which I'm living, ways in which I'm speaking, ways in which I operate that other people would trip over? Or am I turning the light on so that those people don't trip because of something that I do? Think about it like this um, to, to make it a little bit more practical. Pretend for a moment That everyone in your circle, your kids, your spouse, your friends, classmates, whoever that might be, teammates, pretend that everyone around you began to copy everything you say and do. Literally, everything you say and do. The people around you begin to copy everything about you. Where would those people be led? How would those people be living? Would those people be Christ-like? In the way that they speak, the way that they operate, the way that they treat others. Would they, in copying you, be more like Jesus? Or would they be no different than anyone else? We have to examine whether or not there is cause for stumbling in us toward others. Finally, Point number four, you are light walkers and your identity is in Christ. Um, What follows after this discussion about light and darkness seems a bit strange, seems a bit out of place. There are are places in the Bible where it seems like a a wild left turn is taken, And, and this is no different. Verses 12 through 14, it seems like he tacks a little poem on at the end that doesn't really relate to anything that he's been talking about. 
He's, again, been talking about walking in the light, walking in darkness, uh, loving your brother, hating your brother, being able to see, being able to not see. And now all of a sudden he's waxing poetic. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So, what's really going on here? Obviously, this is not a wild left turn. This does relate to what he has been talking about, but how? This is John exhorting the people in love. This is John putting his arm around them and encouraging them not to be guilty of what he has just described. As he's just finished describing this walking in darkness, this blindness, this hatred that's so easy, he stoops down, he puts his hand on their shoulder, and he says, but that's not who you are, dear friends. The apostle of love comes down to where they're sitting, looks them in the eye, and he says, all this stuff about darkness, remember, this is not who you are. So he uses three different terms here. The, the term little children or children, fathers and young men. Um, whether or not this was a poem or a hymn is a mystery. Um, it's bracketed as a quotation in, in the text. Um, it could possibly be an early creed, uh, but John is addressing a particular audience in, in various ways. So the first term that he uses is little children. Well, we know that this means all of the believers, because so many other times in this book, he addresses all of the believers uh, in this way. For example, the the first verse of chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He uses that term, little children, for all of the believers. So this is a catch-all phrase, my little children. And what he says to them is, first, I'm writing these things to you because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Remember, he says, your sins are forgiven, not for yourself, not because you earned it. Your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Your sins are forgiven for his glory and his honor. Later, he says, I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father, like, guys, I know that you know the Father. I know that you know this. I know that you're in connection with the Lord. You don't have to be the way that I just described. Everybody, together, we, we know this. Next, he uses the term young men. Young men and fathers are contrasted here in difference of spiritual maturity. There are those who are young in the faith, and then there are those who are elders in the faith. And so regardless of where you are in spiritual maturity, he's kind of using these bracketed statements to be another catch-all. Okay, whether you're a young man or you're a father, whether you're new to the faith or old to the faith, whether you've been walking with Christ a short time or walking with Christ for a very long time, I have a message for you. So in these statements, there are things that all believers can find true of themselves. Again, first, that we are forgiven for God's namesake. 
Our sins have been washed away because of the way that God loves us. Not because we deserved it, not because we earn it, but because God is love. God is light. God is good. Second, we know that we have a relationship with the eternal Father. We are sons and daughters of the God of the universe. And that should change how we treat people. That should change how we see other people. If that is our primary identity. And then he says this a couple of times. We have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In the Greek, the the verb tense is past, completed. It's done. You've overcome the evil one. The, The battle is already over. John looks at every single one of us and he says, if you are in Christ, I know who you are. I know that you are light walkers. Now go and live in it. This is a concluding exhortation from this, uh, th- this, this thought. Do not walk in the darkness because that is not who you are. Be people that live in the light by the way that you love others. Um, I wanted to really focus on this because um, it's an election year, right? 2020 is uh, shaping up to be right now, an incredibly divisive year where the nation splits over um, candidates and issues and uh, starts screaming at each other. Uh, I'm sure you are uh, waiting with bated breath for all of the political commercials that are to come as candidates are running for office. I love those because they hardly ever talk about the good things that they do. These commercials are almost always, and this is why my opponent is evil. They run over bags of puppies every day and hate their own mothers. Don't vote for them. That's the spirit that sort of takes over. And I wanted us to focus on this to prepare us in advance for that because I don't want us to fall into it as well. I want our church to be defined by the love that we have for each other and the love that we show to everyone else in here and especially out there. The things that we post online, the things that we say in conversation, even the very thoughts that we have in private, in prayer. Let us be people that walk in the light, which means we love rather than hate. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for the exhortation that you give us to love our brothers and sisters, to love our enemies. God, I pray that you would help us to remember that we don't deserve your love, and yet you love us anyway. So I pray that we would love in the same way with everyone in our lives. God, thank you that you never give up on us, that you continue to give us chance after chance, that even after we fail, your word promises us, just in the verses previous to this, that if we confess our sins, you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, I pray that you would help us to have this cycle of repentance and this striving toward holiness. 
in the way that we love you, and in turn, the way that we treat other people. That a true love for you will result in a true love for our neighbors. Let us be the people that are shining the light most brightly as this country gets darker and darker over the next several months. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Josh will play our closing song.